Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... Why do we ask family and friends to do all these kinds of jobs when there's so many people out there who are looking for a way to be able to earn an income? And what we realise is there just isn't a fit-for-purpose way uh, to connect with with local services. It's it's a really difficult uh, thing to do. And so we thought if we could just make a simple e-commerce platform for local services, then there would be a massive opportunity ahead of us. You've probably heard the name of the company of my guest today, and many thousands of you will no doubt have used its services. That company is Airtasker, but its creator and co-founder, Tim Fung, well, he's not so well known. Yet you might have caught up with the news last week when Tim Fung hit the business headlines after ringing the opening bell at the Australian Securities Exchange as his company hit the listing board for the first time via its IPO or initial public offering. And what an explosive debut it was for the young Sydney-based tech platform. As the Financial Review reported, Airtasker's share price shot up a dizzying 170% in its first few days of trading, buoyed by millennial day traders and their social media influencers. Well, if the Reddit GameStop stock trading gang had fun supporting Tim's business in its first few days as a publicly listed company, maybe that makes up for the years of hard grind and struggle that Tim took to create Airtasker and build it from nothing into an impressive and sustainable organization over the past nine years. Today, Airtasker boasts over 950,000 paying customers. So how did he and co-founder Jonathan Liu do it? And just what is this Airtasker phenomenon? Here's Tim Fung. Tim Fung, it's a great pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for joining me on Build It, Thou Come. Thanks for having me. Now, so many Australians already use Airtasker, but for those who don't, what is Airtasker? Airtasker is a marketplace for local services. Uh, and we connect, um, you know, in a nutshell, people who need work done with people who want to work. So it's a pretty uh, simple idea. People are able to you know, request our services and, and find people with the skills to uh, complete those services through our marketplace. Yeah, so it's, it is a digital marketplace, as you say, that enables users or consumers to outsource what their everyday tasks and your platform matches them with people with demonstrated skills and talents who perform that task. The two participants decide on the price? That's right. So one thing that's very interesting that we've observed about the local services economy is that there's sort of two spheres. There's the um, existing services, which we all um, already know about. So things like cleaning and gardening or accountants and, and lawyers and, and people like that, that are looking to move from a you know an offline world into a way to be able to sell their services uh, online through you know a simple e-commerce marketplace like Airtasker. So that's one uh, sphere of work. But actually the other interesting sphere of work that Airtasker is creating are all these new kinds of services that couldn't exist without a marketplace like Airtasker. So, you know, some common examples of that would be um, IKEA furniture assembly. That's something that we did millions of dollars 
uh, worth of, you know, a flat pack furniture assembly uh, last year, or, you know, uh, getting a, a drone out of a tree, if you've flown your drone into a tree, or removing a spider really? uh, from, your, from your ceiling. You know, we did $70,000 worth of those last year. Sorry, just say that again, removing a spider from the corner of your ceiling. How much business did you do doing that last year? We did about $70,000 worth of those uh, jobs last year and about $35, you know, on average uh, task price. So, Oh, that is priceless. It's really interesting. And this is, this is a big part of their task is that, you know, we often laugh or, or have a chuckle about, you know, some of these edge cases. But what we believe is that the sum, the aggregate of all of these smaller edge cases uh, is actually a massive, massive opportunity. Yeah, no, that's extraordinary. But your LinkedIn entry claims that Airtask is the world's largest professional community. I mean, how do you know that and, and what's your evidence for that, given a lot of people on your site, a lot of taskers, as you call them, with skills and talents, are not exactly professional people. They're professional in their um, attitude and everything and their execution of the job, no doubt, but they're not, you know, trained doctors, lawyers, accountants, those sorts of people. So um, it's actually been quite interesting. Over the past uh, nine years since we, um, since we uh, built Airtasker, we've actually seen over time that the average value of the tasks that have been completed through Airtasker has been increasing at a fairly large compound rate of around 8% mm. per year over the past five years. And uh, what this comes down to is that people are more and more likely to be finding people to do more complex and sophisticated work uh, through Airtasker. So certainly when we started the marketplace, we were very focused on everyday jobs like moving boxes or cleaning or, or some simple gardening uh, type work. But now if you um, go into Airtasker, you'll find tax consultants, lawyers who will draft you know, shareholders agreements, um, architects and surveyors. So certainly it is uh, shifting from just being everyday tasks to be a, a mix of both uh, everyday and, and professional work as well. Do you take all comers to perform tasks, mostly in other people's homes? So the way uh, Airtasker works is that, you know, it's very similar to, to something like Airbnb, uh, which is that anybody can create a, um, a profile on Airtasker and get started uh, working right away. And we aim to uh, reduce that friction and enable that instant you know, access to, to flexible working opportunities. But through the marketplace dynamics, um, our taskers are incentivized to add things like their driver's license, passport, working with children's checks, police checks. All of these things have, can be verified uh, through the Airtasker marketplace. Then on top of that, we have things like our trade license verification. So electrical, plumbing, uh, gas fitting, all of these uh, licenses can be added and and um, you know, it's very much like in the uh, the way that you would connect with someone on any other uh, kind of platform, which is that you know you're going to look for the person who's got the credentials which um, are best suited to to the job at hand. Yeah, no, it's it's most interesting. So you don't necessarily check people's bona fides. You don't go through the police checks or anything like that. And it also you get your customers via their reviews to do the quality checks in a sense for you. Well, that's right. So what we've discovered is that, you know, as much as things like licenses are, are very, like we have a lot of respect and, and, and believe that those are, are important indicators of, of quality and, and success. I think, you know, what has been missing from the services economy is transparency and accountability for the actual service outcomes. And that's what allowing people to provide transparent customer reviews allows. 
And how transparent is it? Just for people who haven't used the site, what you cannot leave a review without having actually genuinely ordered the task. That's right. So, you know, customers can probably be wary of some of the sites that are out there, which are either one, you know, advertiser funded, in which case, you know, there's an incentive there to not necessarily uh, share the negative reviews because the advertisers are funding the platform, Mm -hmm. which uh, can be concerning. And then um, other platforms in which there can be a lot of uh, fake reviews. So reviews that are, you know, provided by your brother, sister, uncle, cousin, or, or, you know, a review farm. And how do we know Airtasker isn't doing that? So on Airtasker, we complete the transaction end-to-end, and this is really important to us. So when you use our um, Airtasker, you post a task, you're connected uh, to the tasker through uh, Airtasker. We securely handle the payment between the customer and uh, the tasker, and we release the funds only when the job is done to the customer's satisfaction. By doing that, we can verify that each of the reviews that we've collected are connected to a, to a real uh, transaction in which real money has changed hands. Just back to the point about, you know, your customers via their reviews actually are doing your quality checks for you. I mean, that's a pretty neat cost-saving way to establish the site's credibility and trustworthiness. You get your customers to do your research for you. It is, it's a very efficient model, um, a marketplace model. So uh, we're not standing in the middle between customers and taskers and telling people how to price their jobs or what the scope of the job uh, should be. We're allowing the people who've got the real skills, the taskers, to be able to determine the price and the scope of jobs. And we're allowing customers to choose which tasker uh, that they want to go with. So I think in two ways, that that's, a, that's a really good thing. One, it's an advantage in terms of creating that transparency and accountability, but it also makes for a, a good business model. You know, Airtasker's got gross margins of about 93%. So it's both good from a community and a business perspective. Yeah, no, well, the business model is very good because you really don't have to spend money on building that credibility, that trustworthiness. Your end customers, in a sense, do it for you. That's right. Airtasker is absolutely a community marketplace. And I think, uh, you know, one of the things that we're doing at the moment is as part of our IPO is we're giving uh, an opportunity for our taskers, the, the community members who, who, who built the foundations of Airtasker, we're giving them an opportunity to, to buy in to the company through our Tasker offer. And that's something where I think we are acknowledging absolutely uh, what you just mentioned, which is, you know, we've really built on the foundations of community and, and we want to reward those community members by giving them a chance to own part of Airtasker. That's fantastic. So you're in fact making it a, a really genuine retail offer at least for part of the shareholding, when you do list Airtasker by giving it to very normal individual people? That's right. So we, you know, um, as with any IPO or any sort of company that's going public, that the retail or any individuals can, can buy into the company. But even more specifically than that, we carved out what we're calling the, the Tasker offer, which is a separate part of the IPO, which we're offering exclusively to the Taskers who were early and foundational in building Airtasker. So the earliest taskers who helped us back in 2012 when we launched the marketplace and also our most active taskers who have contributed the most time and effort to, to helping to build our community. Well, that is really fantastic. Tim Fung, how did your original idea for what became Airtasker come about? 
Well, back in uh, 2011, I was moving apartments and I asked a friend of mine to come and help me move because he's got a truck that he uses to do deliveries for his business. We used his truck and we packed everything from my apartment into his truck and, and moved it to my new apartment. And that just got us thinking is like, why do we ask family and friends to do all these kinds of jobs when there's so many people out there who are looking for a way to be able to earn an income doing this type of work? And what we realized is there just isn't a fit-for-purpose way uh, to connect with, with local services. It's it's really difficult uh, thing to do. And so we thought if we could just make a simple e-commerce platform for local services, then there would be a massive opportunity ahead of us. So, I mean, again, that sounds like the classic, you know, almost the starting off in the garage. You started off with a friend's truck and came up with this brilliant idea. But I guess at its very essence, you were trying to find a solution to a really a pretty common problem many people had. How do I find the right person to actually help me? I, I can't do this task myself. That's right. I think what we discovered is there just isn't like a system for, you know, for creating trust in the local community. And what we thought is that, you know, you hear these things where people are so fearful of, you know, the person who lives up the road, they're like, oh, I've never let a stranger, you know, mm. um, come near my house. I've never let a stranger touch my things. And yeah. the way we thought about it is like 99.99999% of the community wants to do the right thing. So why are we so fearful um, of this? And we thought if you could just create a system where there was some transparency and accountability, you would weed out, you know, anyone who does have a negative intention because people aren't going to want to do that in a in a transparent and accountable marketplace. So we thought if you could just create that that simple way of connecting people together, you'd be able to unlock a, a hell of a lot of opportunity. Yeah. So it was always going to be a marketplace type platform. That was your original sort of idea. That's right. So, you know, um, 2012, I mean, it was a, a long time ago now, but, you know, it was the beginnings of, you know, things like social networks and uh, online banking and a lot of these things which we absolutely take for granted today were sort of mm. um, obviously they were they were there but they were sort of emerging and we we saw this trend where you know the internet was kind of moving from you know pseudonyms and nicknames and cute avatars towards really being a part of people's you know real life you know way of doing things we thought that local services should definitely be be a part of that yeah, well, to put that more into context, that's right. 2012 isn't that long ago, but it's in fact probably a lifetime really digitally. So by the time you got started in 2012, had tradespeople already started to move online from the local paper, classified ad columns, the old yellow pages? I mean, that media had already been disrupted, but did you help it get disrupted really right out of business? Well, it's interesting. I think that, uh, yeah, absolutely. There were, you know, already platforms like Craigslist and Gumtree and, yeah. and um, you know, lead generation websites like High Pages or, or OneFlare that existed back then as well. And, you know, they were sort of an evolution of those paper classifieds. You know, it was a digitization of what had already existed. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, that shift was, was happening. Um, I think that one thing that we've discovered, though, is that if you think about how e-commerce works for physical products, like buying a TV or buying a pair of shoes. The e-commerce online is just so amazingly slick and customer-centric and, and awesome. Uh, if you think about Amazon or eBay or Kogan or, or these uh, types of platforms, but buying local services is 
you know, roll the dice on a classifieds or, you know, just try your luck on one of these lead generation websites or take the first person that you find in Google. Um, we were like, mm. you know, isn't that crazy that services are so far behind our physical products? And so what Airtask is trying to do is create that simple e-commerce experience for local services. Yeah. So in fact, Craigslist, Gumtree are still quite different to what you offer. No one was really offering the service that you came to offer in Airtasker? That's right. And and actually, you know, simple e-commerce for local services is something that even if you look at many other developed countries like the UK or the US, uh, Singapore, Ireland and New Zealand, which are all countries which Airtasker is, is now opening up into, none of these markets currently have any uh, significant player creating e-commerce for local services. It's still sort of stuck in that age of classifieds or lead generation type platforms. When you started this, you were, what, about six years out of university. You graduated with a Bachelor of Commerce in 2006. You went to Macquarie Bank and worked in corporate finance. So that obviously gave you, you were numerate, no doubt, and that obviously gave you a great backing in uh, sort of the way corporates and business worked. But how did that go for you, that job? I had a wonderful time out of university working in a place like Macquarie. And, and actually, as, we've, as Airtasker has evolved, it's really made me look back and think, you know, it was great to work in a place in which there was just such a high level of, of excellence and a high level of mm. like operating uh, rigor. So I actually started at Macquarie in a bit of an unconventional way. I actually did a a tourism and hospitality degree at University of New South Wales. And then I actually joined a department at Macquarie um, called the Golf and Leisure Group, which was buying golf courses and funding theme parks and things. Um, So that was my way into Macquarie. Um, And then over about five years, I I ended up um, through a whole bunch of different uh, ways that the company was restructured, uh, ended up in in Macquarie Capital uh, Real Estate Investment Banking. So that was definitely an interesting journey where I got to try lots of things and and learn lots of great, you know, foundational skills. So did you do a Bachelor of Commerce? I did. I did. Um, It was a, a Bachelor of Commerce with a major in marketing, tourism and hospitality. Oh, fantastic. So what do you think, when you look back now, you said that that rigour that you learnt at Macquarie, what lessons have stayed with you through Airtasker that you really brought from your days at Macquarie Group? (laughs) Well, definitely one of them is I'm I'm pretty good at um, PowerPoint and making slide decks um, (laughs) to to explain things uh, to people. So I'm getting really good at PowerPoint and Excel was something that I've carried into, you know, obviously we use slightly different tooling now with you know google docs and things like that but um spreadsheets and 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 slides was definitely something that was good but i think it's also just some of the smaller lessons like i remember at macquarie i once uh, sent out an email with with a couple of you know punctuation mistakes and Ooh, you know my manager yes. at the time just said why don't you just read it and read it again and you know go to the bathroom and read it again just before you send it like why are you so eager to send it because it makes you look sloppy and unprofessional when you do it mm. Such a good lesson. Exactly. (laughs) How long did you stay there? Because, you know, my next question is going to be, why not stay and and make a squillion dollars at the Millionaire's Factory, as it was known? So I was at um, Macquarie for for about five years uh, in the end. So it was a good good run. You know, had that experience, I guess, across, uh, you know, a whole different variety 
of transactions. But it was actually, you know, 2009, I was watching a lot of the show Entourage and um, I wanted to be like um, Ari Gold, the, uh, the celebrity talent agent. So, you know, I was looking for something. Oh, for those people listening who don't know Entourage, just give us the tiniest pen portrait of Ari Gold. Oh, well, he's is a, he he's really a, a hero up there on a pedestal? <laughs> oh, look, he's, he's very definitely very entertaining, um, but an obnoxious uh, yes. celebrity talent manager who uh, who runs around doing deals. But but I think underlyingly, a good character, you know, a, a person yeah. who you know wants to do the right thing ultimately. Oh, uh, that may be debatable, but <laughs> I think <laughs> for his, for his so. <laughs> Yeah, so then, okay, so Ari Gold was your, you wanted to be him, and then what happened? Well, I um, made a, a CV and I, um, I, I pushed it out to a whole group of different talent agents in Australia. I was really fortunate to get picked up by a lady named Ursula Hufnagel, who started um, a company called Chic Management, uh, which yeah. discovered people like Miranda Kerr and manages a, um, a whole bunch of Australian and, and US celebrities. Yes. Ursula herself was obviously a very famous model long before your time, Tim, but uh, she started one of Australia's best-known modelling agencies, yes. Yes, and so I um, I was, you know, um, she offered a chance to, to work with her. You know, I, I worked pro bono. Oh, really? Yes, that's right. And I, and I, um, I basically uh, pitched her on... Um, how good I was at PowerPoint and how I could uh, help her uh, make PowerPoint decks for all her celebrities and things. So I did that and um, it was really under the pretense that if you could connect and work with great people, opportunities would come up. You know, you, you don't know what they're going to be and you can't sort of foreshadow them up front. But, you know, if you if you find yourself working with talented uh, people, there's going to be opportunity. And, and that was my thesis for, for being willing to work for nothing um, for a period of time. Yeah. So, Tim, just let me get this straight. You were at Macquarie Bank for something like five years. It was known as the Millionaire's Factory. And you left there to work in a modelling agency for nothing. Is that right? (laughs) Yeah. When when you say it that starkly, I think, um, (laughs) look, I I would definitely say as well, like, and and I look back at this, you know, in in a very positive way, but at the time, Macquarie was going through so many restructures because you know, we were in the property division of Macquarie and um, this was just post the um, the global financial crisis. Right. And so, you know, I mentioned um, all of yep. those different restructures uh, that we had, but I think I moved about six times in a few years uh, following yeah. 2007. So, um, it wasn't it wasn't a perfect environment at Macquarie. And I think the other thing is, you know, I was 25 at the time and so I had a lot of room to, to take you know, that sort of risk, uh, probably something that I couldn't do now, you know, I'm, I'm married and have a mortgage. So, <laughs> Yeah. So at 25, what you felt, if I don't do something now, I'll never do it. I probably didn't think with such a high degree of clarity. It was probably more like, this would be really cool. I'm going to go do this. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, it just sort of uh, rolled off the back of that. It was probably less strategic. Yeah. Okay. So you're at Ursula Huffnagel's Chic Management. What did you learn there and, and how did you get mentored there? Well, it was, it was very serendipitous, actually. So Ursula's uh, partner at uh, Chic is, a, is a, a man named Peter O'Connell. Peter was you know, a very renowned uh, business person who mm-hmm. had been you know, the youngest lawyer, I think, to be a partner at, at, a, at a large law firm in Sydney, Gilbert and Tobin. 
and then had uh, been a founding director of Optus and had done a huge number of entrepreneurial and, and business things before. And he, he saw me sitting out the back of the Molly agency that he was a part owner of and was like, who's this? And um, like, he does not look like he fits in um, at, the, at the Molly agency because my fashion. Just a minute. Is- why, did, why did he think you didn't fit in? Uh, well, for one, I think it was an office of about 40 people. And I think I was, you know, one of two, two men uh, who worked in the office. So that was, you know, probably the first thing. So that, you stood out like, from that point of view. Yep. And then I think also my fashion sense. Um, I don't I don't have any uh, compared to the other people um, that, that were working in that uh, environment. So he just sort of got curious and asked me what I was doing here. And he had just come back from a stint overseas as the CEO of, a, of an overseas telco company and was looking at new opportunities. And so, you know, again, I guess my PowerPoint and uh, Excel skills uh, came in handy. And, and again, I just said, hey, I'll, you know, I'll do some work for you for nothing. He actually rejected me on that and started paying me something. The idea that actually ended up sticking was to create a low-cost mobile network. And so we started a company called Amazim, which is a, mm. a SIM-only mobile virtual network operator. We actually started that at the back of the at the back of the modeling agency, you know, that listed on the ASX in in 2015, and and was acquired by Optus a couple of weeks ago. So, did you make a bunch of money out of that? I made a little bit of money out of that. So, I think uh, the way I would characterize it is again, I'm getting that experience at that at that young age. So, I was 25 or 26 at the time. I was. I got the opportunity to work with Peter and the other founders of Amazing, which we recruited from Germany. I got the opportunity to to basically be the assistant to the chairman and the and the CEO, and that Fantastic. was really just an MBA in you know how to start a startup, which I, I think is priceless. Yeah. So Tim, how did you actually make the leap to say I'm going to start my own thing? Well, it was interesting because whilst we were at Amazing, it was an incredible ride for the first uh, two years where. We hired about 150 people. We, you know, set up new offices. We we had to raise around 40 million dollars of capital and and do a big wholesale deal with Optus as a mobile um, infrastructure provider. And so there were all these things that we we had to do in those first couple of years. But ultimately, once we'd we'd been through that period, it was like working for a basic telco. You know, we'd we'd set up the company and we didn't have to do all of those, you know, really, really big projects. And so I started talking with one of my colleagues, Jono, in the kitchen every day, just like, oh, you know, what's next? What are we gonna do? And so, you know, when the idea for Airtasker came around, we decided to jump on it together. So Jono was one of my university friends, worked with us at Amazim, and then became my co-founder at Airtasker. So this is Jonathan Liu? That's right. So you had this experience in a startup in the digital world. You had some financial experience. Was there an actual vision? Was there a business plan between you and Jono at the very beginning? Yeah, so we definitely knew that, you know, from our experience at Amazing, you had to write some stuff down and you had to put yourself out there as to what the business could do. So we did have a financial model. We did have a, a PowerPoint deck and, and we had a, a pretty detailed business plan and scoping uh, document. But what I, you know, looking back on that, and I think, you know, the world is wiser now is most of that stuff doesn't really matter uh, that much uh, when you're starting a startup. It's actually better to focus more of your energy on building an MVP and just getting out there and, and giving it and, and getting it into the hands of customers and finding out for real. Whether they like it, whether it's going to work. 
That's right, because that's that's usually the biggest unknown is will customers actually buy it? So we probably did a whole bunch of work that you know modern day startups might do a little bit less of. Nevertheless, I think that putting in that extra effort at the beginning, you know, I'm sure created some value uh, for us in the conversations that we had and, and the way we thought about the problem. Yeah. So by this stage, how old are you? I was about 27, I think, when we started at 28, maybe. So how did you get funding for your startup in the very beginning? Was this, did you both kick in some money that you'd saved? Did you kind of beg and borrow from family or banks or friends? We put in our own money to, to do that very first kickstart. And I think one of the things that, that both Jono and I knew is that you couldn't kind of half-bake a marketplace. If you wanted to, to build, do this, you would have to go all in because marketplaces are built on network effects. And that means you're not going to know if your product is good until you have built up at least you know a first part of critical mass. And so we both decided that we would quit our jobs at Amazon and we put in our, our own money to, to start. Roughly how much do you remember you both put in? I think we put in about $50,000 uh, between the two of us. Okay. Quite a lot of money for us at the time, but you know, it was enough as well to signal that we were serious about doing what we were doing. And I think that's part right. of why people want to see that too, that you, know, you really do have skin in the game and you're not just, you know, you're not a fly-by-nighter. Yeah. So you put in, say, 50000 When did you start to perhaps get some money from other investors or angel investors and when did they show up? You know, funding was a, a major priority for us early on. As, as we mentioned, building a marketplace is definitely something that you need to get mm. scale in. And so by the end of 2011, we'd raised another few hundred thousand dollars um, from friends and family. Particularly there that was, was good for us is that we had the blessing of the founders of Amazon. So they actually said to us, we'll let you you know, use our office, the corner of our office and, and sit there and do your air task of work because we want to make sure that if we have something that goes wrong at Amazon, we can, we can you know, grab you because <laughs> you have a lot of the information still in your head. Ah. So we started out in the corner of Amazon and they gave us a, a little bit of, the founders gave us a little bit of um, seed funding as well uh, to get started. Wow. So you actually became indispensable to Amazon. I wouldn't go indispensable, but but certainly when you start a startup, you don't have that structure of everything being documented perfectly and, and things like that. So, you know, somebody would say, hey, where's that share certificate? And it'd be like, oh, it's in the bottom drawer. <laughs> um, so um, that sort of stuff is, you know, it is hard to replace. Yeah. So the first iteration of Airtasker, you built a website, a marketplace. Did you have to get others in to do that or were you and Jono actually building it yourselves? So I would say that neither Jono or I are, are software engineers. Jono is an engineer and is, I would say, a very good product person. And I would come more from the, the marketing and branding yeah. and the business side of things. Jono took the lead with, with building our product specifications and then we together uh, went to hire a group of engineers to actually build the, the platform. So we found a group of uh, people who had a small office on, on George Street, a really, really kooky little office where they ate lots of fast food and had, you know, arcade games out the back. And they were basically, you know, guns for hire. They, the group was called Sentia. So we went to, to Michael at Sentia and we said, hey, can you help us build this? And, you know, that was a big chunk of where our that initial funding 
uh, money uh, had to go to, to hiring that group of engineers to, to build the first iteration of the product. Right. So that was George Street in the middle of Sydney, but this tiny little office, oh, tiny little yeah. bunch of guys. Yeah, it was, it was really a bunch of sort of just out of uni developers. And, and that's exactly what we wanted because we didn't want to, you know, go and engage an agency or one of these like high cost sort of models. Okay. Can you remember the feeling of when you actually attracted either your first, well, I guess you had to get your taskers on the website first and then your users? Yeah. So the way that we started was that we we actually went to some university associations because our original thesis was that it would be students who would be the primary candidates to be taskers on our platform. Right. So we, we partnered up with, I think, the Law Society, the Business Society, and we said, you know, this is good for your students. You know, it's a chance for them to earn money. And so we were able to get into their newsletters and, and get the word out that way and, and sign up our first, you know, couple of hundred email addresses on the uh, tasker side of the market. But then we knew that the other side of the market, customers, was going to be incredibly difficult. And it was. It was really, really hard. When we turned their tasker on late at night on it was a Tuesday night in February of 2012, we, we ate our Hungry Jacks again <laughs> that night and we turned it on and we just waited and waited. And it was a couple of hours before the first task got posted. And I can say that the first two tasks that were posted on Airtasker were both adult uh, tasks and had to be deleted <laughs> straight away. So, oh, I'm laughing, but that's that would have been a shock to you, I'm sure. Oh, that was a that was like a oh my gosh! And so, luckily, we had invested into a and an into an admin panel, which I think a lot of uh, platforms actually leave till later down the line because it's not MVP. Right. We had invested into basic, you know, delete content functionality, so we were all over that, and uh, we had quite a lot longer to get more tasks on. So tell me about your novel marketing stunt at an Apple store, I presume the one in Sydney. Yeah, so we talked about this idea of like, how do we make Airtasker relevant to, to people, you know, in the news and in the media? Because Airtasker is really a platform that can do anything. So how do we make ourselves relevant? And at the time, the iPad was coming out and it was a really, really big deal. So we posted a task on Airtask and we said, hey, can someone line up to get the first one of these in the world? Because Australia was going to be the first uh, place because of the, the, the time zones that was going to get one. So we, we posted up a task and we actually offered $1,000 to, to line up. And a man named Stephen Parks bid on our task and we, we chose him to do the job. And it was a really great story. Steve was a, a truck driver who'd been just made redundant and was now studying for a TAFE course that he was doing online. So it was a perfect uh, thing for him to sit up the front of the Apple store and do his study. I guess the funny thing there was that he started lining up on the Monday um, before the iPad was going to be released on Friday and no what? one else joined him in the line until Wednesday. So um, he was standing out so, there. So just a minute, he was standing out there being paid by you $1,000. He yes. was standing and no doubt sleeping out on the street, what, for five nights? Four nights. Four nights. What was really great is that people started really supporting Steve. So we had a company, a parking company start to, to fund all his meals. So they would deliver meals to him. We had the Cancer Council give him hat and shade and water to make sure that he was uh, well nourished <laughs> out there. Mason gave him access to broadband. You could argue, Tim, that you were abusing him by letting him stand out in the sun and the cold. 
Well, you know, when you look at it as an hourly rate, it's not great. But in his circumstance, I think it worked out really well. Yeah. So he was happy in the end with his thousand bucks. Oh, he was stoked. And and he actually became quite famous. If you you look up the media from around the time, he was interviewed by, you know, multiple news stations, I think Channel 10, The Morning Show, Sunrise, etc. Unfortunately, he forgot to to mention Airtasker um, in his (laughs) interviews, uh, which we were a bit bummed about. (laughs) I was going to say you, on the other hand, got your free publicity, but maybe you didn't. Well, he was wearing an Airtasker t-shirt, which was good, but he didn't mention our name when they asked what website, you know, did you use to get this job? He said, I can't hear you. I can't hear you with all the noise. Oh, cheeky. All right. Now, so apart from that, you know, great marketing stunt on your part, apart from that first Tasker, what was the first job, legitimate job, not adult job that you sold on Airtasker? And what was the feeling like when sales did start to come in? Well, the first, um, the first job, I actually um, can't recall the very first task that was uh, completed, but I do remember the first jobs that Jono and I did, which were very early on. Um, so I did a KFC delivery as one of my first jobs, and, and Jono had to help someone close a, a store, uh, a retail store in Paddington, uh, which was his uh, first job on, on the platform. And in those Gosh. early days, we were seeing maybe 15 tasks posted per day, something like that. And, you know, so, you know, it was hours and hours and hours between each <laughs> task getting mm, uh, posted. Mm. And it really took probably about four years for us to really get sort of a cadence of growth happening in the marketplace. And and so that was a really, really long um, and, and quite hard um, period of, of all of our lives. Wow. So how much of a struggle were those early years? Well, um, it it was interesting. I mean, in terms of when you look back at it and you you look at the chart, you can see the semblance of, you know, increasing growth. And when I look back at it, you know, we were growing at something like 15% a month or something, which I think sounds like a lot when, you know, you look at it now and and you've got scale and you've got traction. But in that early days, 15% increase per month was, was literally moving from sort of 300 tasks a month to 330 tasks per month, to 360 tasks per month. And so it was was slow for sure. And so really I would characterize those early days as we just did whatever we needed to do to to wrangle as many tasks as we could out of the marketplace. We would hand out flyers ourselves. I remember, you know, some late nights where, you know, I'd just be, I couldn't sleep. And so I'd just walk Mm. down the road (laughs) putting flyers in people's letterboxes. And it was really hard. Uh, fortunately, in 2013, which was about two years into it, we were able to convince a venture fund called Exto Partners to back us, and they did with a, with around an investment of around $2 million, and that kept us going again for the next couple of years. But it was really, mm. can we just survive to the next round of funding? Were you close to failure, or did the business come close to falling over before you got that Exto funding? Well, Let's say that I, I would say that uh, every time we raised money, we were probably eight weeks away from, you know, having no money. Oh. Yeah, it was always on an knife edge. But, but I think that that is, I guess, how startups go generally. You know, it's, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to do it in a risk-free uh, way. And if you are doing it that way, you're probably going to be leaving a lot on the table. So definitely in hindsight, it looks uh, scary. I would never put our company in that kind of position at the stage we're in now where we've got a lot more responsibility to a lot more, you know, great staff members and employees. But certainly back in that day, we didn't really have a choice. 
Yeah, so it was really just you and Jono for a lot of that those early years. I was uh, myself, Jono, a um, lovely team member named Farina, who was our first uh, employee and a good friend of ours. And when we had a, a team of engineers that we hired, we were a team of about six or seven for the first sort of two and a half years. How did you settle on what commission you clipped from each job and from both the tasker and the user? There, there is a bit of criticism around that your commission is very high, something like 20% that you take from taskers and what about 10% that you take from those employing the taskers? So we at Airtasker have a take rate, which is our percentage of the sort of total sales that go through our platform. We have a yep. take rate of around 17%. So on the Tasker side of the market, you mentioned the, the fees there. So it depends on how many jobs the taskers complete per month. So if you do a lot of jobs on Airtasker, you pay as low as 10% in service fees to Airtasker. If you're just doing one uh, job at a time, uh, one job a month, you can pay up to 20% of fees. So that's where that 20% number comes on. That's what you pay if you're in the lowest tier of user engagement. Um, on the tasker side. And then on the customer side, we have a, a booking fee, which is charged on top of the task price. And that's as low as $2.90 and a maximum of $24. And I think that pricing is something that is uh, really important for early stage uh, startups. It's something that I think it's rather than going out and raising a whole bunch of venture capital and, you know, and then not charging customers anything, I think it's important to find out what customers are willing to pay uh, for the service yeah. that, that you provide. And I think, you know, Airtasker isn't like a subscription company where we sort of get people to, you know, sign up and then we slowly increase the prices over time or something like that. It's very much on a transaction by a transaction basis. And, and our goal is simply to align the incentives of the customer, the tasker and Airtasker to all want the same thing, which is as many jobs created as possible. Tim, are you confident that there is enough of a decent wage for your taskers? I mean, I guess you would say to me, well, they wouldn't come back if they weren't happy with the money. But given that, you know, you don't offer holiday pay or sick leave or anything like that. Well, I would say that the first thing is the taskers set their own prices uh, for the jobs on their tasker. And I think that there's a lot of, there are a few misnomers that go around in this regard. Uh, so the first thing is that two thirds of people who uh, receive an offer on Airtasker, which is cheaper, do not choose the cheapest offer. So for example, if you get two offers on Airtasker, one is for $90, the other one's for $100, 70% of people choose the $100 uh, person. Uh, and not the cheaper one. So it's actually not a race to the bottom at all in that regard, mm. and customers aren't price sensitive. The other thing to say is that when customers post a task on Airtasker, on average, taskers will complete that task for 20% more than that price. In other words, taskers say to customers, no, you can't have it for $100. It's going to be $120 because I need to do X, Y, and Z. And I think that this makes intuitive sense because most people are not actually price sensitive when it comes to services. If you kind of think about someone coming over to your house to do your cleaning, most people don't know the difference between, ah, oh, is it $25 an hour, 30, 35? People aren't that price sensitive to it. But if you look at the difference between 25 and 35, you're actually looking at a 40% price difference. Whereas when you're buying a pair of shoes, people are very sensitive between, you know, $60 and $70 which is only a 10% or 12% um, sort of price difference. So I think that price sensitivity is, is a big misnomer and the race to the bottom is a bit of a myth in, in the local services economy. 
Hope you enjoyed part one of my chat with Tim Fung. Next week in part two, Tim reveals why he went public but isn't selling any of his own stake, how COVID helped shape Airtasker's trajectory and why it's important to listen and take advice. I hope you enjoyed Build It, Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.